Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. This week it was learned that officials from Peoria Public Schools confiscated what some sources say was a knife from a student riding a bus to Keller Primary School on the city's north side. Problem was, the public was just learning about it almost a week after it happened. The district initially justified it by saying there was not an imminent threat and what they called inappropriate objects are confiscated all the time. On Friday, District 150 Superintendent Sharon Damalong Karat talked with WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. I want to set this up exactly because I am we are we're all aware we can't talk about a student, we can't talk uh, necessarily about uh, a, a student's punishment or lack thereof. But there's a, a a buzz about the community right now that I do want to address. So. Um, a person, uh, this uh, child, has an inappropriate object. Uh, you're not saying what it is, but we all have heard what it is, and I will just describe it as potentially a weapon, not a gun, a dangerous item that a child should not have. And uh, it happened last week. So I have two questions uh, about that. When a When these kind of incidents happen, what is the thinking of not telling other parents about this incident. Yep, thank you so much for asking. Um, And you know at PPS, because both of your children graduated from PPS and they're doing exceptionally well, or graduating. um, So we take safety and wellness of our students and staff very seriously. We're very good at it. We have 30 officers uh, spread out through our district supporting buildings and so forth. So our threat assessment team, every building has a threat assessment team, and um, they abide. There are a series of time-tested procedures and stuff that they follow. Right. And, um, and so it's, you know, if there's no threat, like, you know, I, I got some emails from some parents, and I said, hey, here are some guiding questions that, that we ask. Is the threat imminent in this situation? No. Can the threat be spread in this situation? No. Is the threat contained? Yes. Right? So there's no need for mass notifications at all if there are, you know, uh, mass notifications are not utilized in the absence of an active or without threat. There's really no threat. The kid has the stuff on the bus. The principal mm-hmm. met the kid at the bus stop when they came to, you know, I mean, at the school when, when the bus arrived at school. Uh, took care of business, con- uh, took away the, 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 the item, and um, and then, you know, just continued with the day. I mean, you know, telling, saying, okay, there's a kid with a, an inappropriate weapon um, on the school bus. That's, I mean, that's, it, it did not get into the school. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, Dan. Well, I'll give you a good example of a local school district. They found a really good sized knife. Uh, another kid saw it and turned it in, and uh, in a kid's backpack. Well, they pulled the kid in, pulled the parents in. He had had it in a Boy Scout weekend, forgot mm-hmm. to take it out. So, and it was it was an imposed, but it was part of a Boy Scout knife thing. Yeah, so it's a pretty good. Size and so, knife. so the thing is, is they had to go. Okay, what's intent here? 
well, you know, it, was it a mistake? Was it intent? Was it was it a mistake? He shouldn't have done it, but he was no threat. So you really have to assess the individual. Do they have a past background in in the school? So you just can't say school on the bus and have everyone freak out until you know all the details and what the intent was. And then it is a delicate balance, and we do it all the time. We notify parents to put schools on on lockdown, you know, if there's shootings in the, in the community, and that happens very often, and we'll say to parents, hey, there's this area, there's a shooting, blah, 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 blah. School is on lockdown. Uh, no need to worry. We have, you know, we were working with PPD. We worked with PPD. Actually, yesterday we had to notify parents about a situation where we worked with PPD. Our officers, they go to the homes. You hear a threat? My, my officers and PR public area police department they're in the homes they're searching and i'm telling you we take safety very very seriously some and and they err on the side of our staff they err on the side of kids and they're constant we're busy when i tell you we're busy 24 7 so yes we do ask these guiding questions is the threat imminent can the threat spread is the threat contained and and then that that determines whether individuals are notified or not. Otherwise, the focus is on, number one, a safe environment so that we can really continue to do the, 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 the teaching and learning Doctor, uh, for the children. Dr. Karat, there's a, a, a sub-story that is out there that I want you to speak to, and that is, uh, the, you know, how uh, we can jump to conclusions, and the conclusion that I am hearing people jump to is, that uh, we don't tell anything about the punishment of a student because the there is no punishment because the school needs uh, the butts in their seats so that they can get paid by the state. And that accusation is out there today. People are saying that that is the reason that they, nobody tells anybody anything because the students uh, aren't punished. And the reason they're not punished is because uh, uh, the district wants the money. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's definitely not true. Actually, that that train left the bus a long time ago. That bus left a long, long time ago. We're not funded that way anymore, actually. So that that that's not true. Um, kids get involved with um, situations at school and their infractions. They're definitely punished. Um, the way that schools are funded um, nowadays, it's 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 not based on attendance anymore. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Let me well, ask let, about alternative school. Dan, you brought yeah, that up. Yeah, I want to ask that. Ago. Yeah, so uh, yeah. kid, kid's a problem. He's had a couple of fights, maybe loosely tied to a gang. He's a threat. Okay. Uh, and everyone's like, well, if you kick him out, the police will tell you this. So the old chiefs used to tell me all this. You kick a kid out of school, now he's our problem and your problem because he's wandering the streets. Right. So you right. got to keep him in school, but you don't, as a parent, I don't want him around my kids. I want him a semester or two away, but there's got to be an alternative school or alternative place for them to go that the parents know, okay, this person's away for a while until we feel he can come back. That costs yeah. money, and it and right. there used to be more or less over the 37 years I've uh, I've been here. So is, is there a situation like that? Is there a school like yeah. that? Yes, thank you, Dan, for asking. Since I've been back in 2015, I've opened up 15 one-five alternative um, placements. Um, we have we have um, game changers. We have 
Knoxville, and we I, we added Saturday school, Sunday school. We added weekend school. We added um, evening school. We have we have alternative programs for primary primary kids K through four. An alternative program called Rise. We have alternative program for middle school kids. Um, there are about four or five options. We have alternative program for high schools. Actually, I just went through uh, two days ago the capstone projects. Just listening, you know, to the some of them are raising themselves. Just listening to what they're saying, like, hey, you know, without that option, we would not have made it. We're so thankful, and there's a work component to that as well. So this is, you know, the district is doing a fantastic job with providing, knowing that one size doesn't fit all, and so I'm really, really proud of that. And, we, and of course, we have the online program. And one of the things I said to the, my team two weeks ago, I said, if there are any major disruptions, we're going to end the year strong. If there are any major disruption, anyone creates any fights, whatever, you're going to have to go to an alternative school until the year is out. So hopefully, you know, the principals are sharing that with their, with their children. Good. So, yeah, this is, this is fantastic. And the other thing is we have a super close relationship with our police chief um, of Peoria Police. Uh, I'm on speed dial with him. He's on speed dial with me. And uh, we work very, very, very closely together. They have liaisons assigned to the schools. And um, so I guess my, my message to our families is, you know, we, we, are, we are very good with the safety piece. We have a lot of pieces. We have a lot of collaboration. You know, trust us. And, and, and anyone who responded to me, sent me an email. I responded to them and basically sharing, okay, this is why a mass notification was not made. More Week in Review coming up. It was about a year ago that this area experienced the loss of a law enforcement officer in the line of duty. Knox County Sheriff's Deputy Nicholas Wiest was killed as the car leading police on a high-speed chase from Galesburg struck him as he was putting out stop sticks. Wiest was one of a dozen officers killed in the state last year, honored this week by Governor J.B. Pritzker as part of a ceremony at the Illinois State Capitol's Fallen Officers Memorial. This memorial is dedicated to the police officers who courageously served with valor, pride, and integrity. The 12 souls that we remember today carried forth that spirit of service knowing that they were putting their own lives on the line to protect others. Today, while we eternalize them, as police officers, I want to speak just for a moment to how special they were as people. Before serving as an officer with the Forest Park Police Department for nearly two decades, Nicholas Kozak served in the U.S. Army and the Illinois National Guard. But first and foremost, he was a devoted husband to the love of his life, Maureen, a caring son to his mother, Barbara, and a proud uncle to his sister, Anastasia, and her children. He always kept those around him, especially his fellow Forest Park officers, smiling with his wit. Officer Nicholas Kozak's passing leaves a gaping hole in the Forest Park community, but his legacy of kindness and empathy lives on 
in the officers he trained and the lives that he touched. Officer James Sveck served with the Chicago Police Department for 20 years. At the age of 39, Officer Sveck earned his associate's degree and completed 29 weeks of training at the Chicago Police Academy to achieve his lifelong goal of serving and protecting. A loving father and important figure to his children, Samantha, Chelsea, and Sydney, and Papa to his great grandchildren, Braden, Vivian, and Madeline. James inspired those around him to pursue their dreams, no matter how big or small. Customs and Patrol, Customs and Border Patrol canine officer Jeffrey P. Delacruz served the nation diligently for more than three decades. A dog lover, a motorcycle enthusiast, Officer Delacruz was a friend to all who knew him finding joy in any and every situation. But more than anything, he loved his wife, Kathy, and his children, Ashley and Sarah, who carry on his memory. Chicago Police Department officer, Jose M. Huerta, leaves behind his wife, Elizabeth, and his children, Ariel and Master Joseph, as well as his mother, Mary. Joey, to those who knew him, exuded kindness in all that he did, his heart could fill up a room. Ariel and Master Joseph, I also lost my father when I was around your age. And I know you will always miss him, but I hope that you will always remember that he loved you more than anything in the world, and he lives on in each of you. For more than 27 years, Joseph A. Tripoli rose through the ranks of the Chicago Police Department, making his way up to detective. But it wasn't just his work ethic and his determination that made him special. It was his selflessness. He put his heart into everything that he did. And Detective Tripoli would stop at nothing to protect his loved ones, especially his children, Jacqueline, Joseph, and Nicholas. To Detective Tripoli's father, Joseph, nothing can fill the hole in your heart, but I hope you find some comfort in the amazingly positive impact that your son had on so many people. Will County Deputy Sheriff Michael John Queenie radiated a spirit of positivity, both at home with his wife Kelly and their five children and at the sheriff's office with fellow officers. When watching the Hallmark Channel, or certainly watching his children with enormous pride, he was a good man and a kind man. Sergeant Kenneth John Thurman, Sr., an Army vet, served with the Aurora Police Department for over 20 years. But the job he enjoyed most was serving as father to his 11 children, along with the love of his life, Teresa. From constructing a koi pond, to playing Xbox, to camping in the backyard, Sergeant Thurman loved nothing more than spending time with his family. He was taken from us too soon, but he leaves behind lifetimes worth of adventures, adventures that his loved ones will cherish always. Deputy Sheriff Brian J. Norton served with the Ford County Sheriff's Office for only a few years, 
but he left an indelible mark on his colleagues and all who knew him. When he wasn't serving his community, you would find him hitting balls on the golf course, listening to 80s rock bands, or cheering on the Cubs. But nothing brought him more joy than spending time with his father, John, his brother, Jeff, and his longtime girlfriend, Hannah, and her children, all of whom he loved dearly. Aurora Police Department Officer Brian Shields brought wisdom and thoughtfulness to his accomplishments in public service when he wasn't spending quality time with his wife, Marina, and his children, Ava, Samuel, Malati, Nathaniel, and Serena. You could find him buried in a book, offering good advice to those in his community or volunteering at school. He pushed everyone around him to be the best versions of themselves because he expected that of himself. Deputy Sheriff Joseph Robert Tinoco of the Cook County Sheriff's Department was guided by a strong moral compass. A proud union man and a certified girl dad, Deputy Sheriff Tinoco always put others before himself, his wife Teresa, his daughters Samantha and Alyssa, his fellow Cook County officers and the public that he served. May we find solace in knowing that he loved his family more than anything. Ottawa Police Department officer Brian Lee Sember lived by the core belief that everyone is human. Anyone can stumble and can be forgiven. His integrity was unmatched. If he made a mistake, he owned it. And he taught his fellow officers to do the same. And he knew how important it was to show up for those that he loved. He'd drop everything to attend his daughter's softball games or surprise a friend at their birthday party. His family meant the world to him. His fiance, Danielle, his children, Brady and Bryn, and his mother, Pamela. And it seemed like everyone knew him. And they knew that he considered them, they considered him like a brother. Knox County Deputy Sheriff Nicholas Donald Wiest felt his call to service since he was just a boy, and he lived by his values even in his very last moments. To say Deputy Sheriff Wiest was a hero would be an understatement, but more than that, he was a giant in his community. Whether he was teaching others self-defense or spearheading the Explorers program at the Aledo High School, Deputy Sheriff Wiest exemplified what it means to serve. And more than anything, his heart belonged to his wife, Jessica, his parents, Kevin and Robin, and his children, Ava Lynn and Emery David. For each of these men who protected and served us all, and for the police officers across the nation who we've lost this last year, let us take a moment now in gratitude and in mourning. To the family and friends of our fallen officers, the state of Illinois grieves with you. To the first responders mourning their lost brothers, we stand with you in remembering and honoring the fallen. These brave men will not be forgotten. They will live on in our memories, in the lives of those that they've saved, and in the hearts of those that they've touched. May their memories be a blessing. More Week in Review coming up.
The Illinois Senate this week, on a mostly party-line vote, joined the Illinois House in passage of a bill backed by Illinois Secretary of State and State Librarian Alexi Janulius, essentially banning libraries from banning books. This, as other parts of the country are going forward with the bans of supposed controversial reading material, the ban specifies things like political pressure and the taking away of state library grant money if book bans move forward. Janulius talked about the bill's passage during a state capitol news conference this week, along with Peoria Public Library Executive Director Randall Yelverton. I want to applaud the wonderful work of our librarians across the state, including Summer Griffith, uh, the director of the Lincoln Library right here in Springfield, uh, who will be joining us today, and our friends uh, from Peoria, Randall Yelverton, Gina Burr, and Alice Jackson. Uh, the library community has played uh, an instrumental role in getting this legislation approved since we first introduced it uh, in January. Thank you to the librarians for all that you do for the communities you serve. Librarians are and always will be our heroes and my heroes. This landmark legislation is a triumph for our democracy, a win for First Amendment rights, and most importantly, a great victory for future generations to come. This bill protects our freedom of speech and equally important, our freedom to think critically. That's because the United States has always served as a beacon of freedom to the world. And that freedom includes the right to learn and the right to share information and ideas. Under this legislation, if books are banned, Illinois libraries will not be eligible for state-funded library grants. Specifically, Illinois libraries must demonstrate that they adhere to the American Library Association's Bill of Rights, which indicates books should not be removed if they expect to receive state funding from this office. This right to read legislation will help remove the pressure that librarians have had to endure from extremist groups like the Proud Boys, who have targeted some of our libraries and their staff. This first-of-its-kind legislation is important because the concept of banning books contradicts the very essence of what our country stands for. It also defies what education is always, has always been about, teaching our children to think for themselves. Ray Bradbury, the acclaimed Illinois author who wrote Fahrenheit 451, was once quoted as saying, the problem in our country isn't with books being banned, but with people no longer reading. You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture, just get people to stop reading them. And that's where the real danger lies. Opponents of this legislation say they're not out to ban books, but when individuals demand that certain books be, quote, removed from school and public libraries, that's a distinction without a difference. Just because books aren't burned in the local town square doesn't make restricting public access to them any more acceptable. They are trying to manipulate the power of the state to support their unjustified demands for censorship and to keep your children from reading something that they don't agree with. Parents, and only parents, have the right and the responsibility to restrict the access of their children, and only their children, to library resources. In other words, you get to decide what's right for your children, but you don't get to make that decision for everyone else's. 
All of this is having a chilling effect in public school libraries throughout the country, resulting in a polarization not only of our country, but within our communities. As Summer and her colleagues know all too well, some librarians have been forced to quit after being harassed and subjected to intimidation and hateful messages in person and on social media. Others have been fired for refusing to remove books from circulation. Just last week, PEN America reported 2,532 instances of books being banned in schools last year, affecting 1,700 different book titles, including many American classics. Here are a few of those examples of books that have been banned. 1984 by George Orwell. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Kite Runner of Mice and Men. And even I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Of the more than 2,500 bands, 96% were enacted without following the best practice guidelines for book challenges outlined by the American Library Association. Is it any surprise that these objectionable books are predominantly about people of color, LGBTQ, or other ethnicities? That they are books containing information about history, race, gender, or social justice? justice. We are reaching the point where hate speech is protected, but the simple act of reading a book is a restricted right. It's honestly hard and deeply disheartening to figure out how we even got to this point. Regardless, it's shameful that it's gotten this far, and I'm proud that in Illinois, we're the first state in the country to do something about it. We can do more, we will do more about this issue. House Bill 2789 establishes a clear path opposite and away from the damaging trend to ban and censor books that a small but loud few disagree with. This legislation aims to unify our communities and seeks to restore a right that some of us may have grown to take for granted, the freedom to think for ourselves. It's my hope that others may look toward Illinois and see the value in adopting our legislation as a model to stop book banning in its tracks and protect the right to read freely and without fear of retribution. I'd like to introduce Randall Yelverton, Executive Director of the Peoria Public Library. I will say that folks in Peoria have been outstanding partners, leaders, um, and allies uh, in this fight. Randall? Thank you, uh, Secretary Giannoulias. Um, we are pleased to be here to celebrate the historic passage of House Bill 2789. Thank you uh, to Secretary Giannoulias, Governor Pritzker, and legislators for your strong defense against the book bans and challenges that are surging in other states. These bans and challenges are suppressing culture and ideas and diminishing our free society. Free people read freely. It should be that simple. But the latest data from the American Library Association shows that book challenges nationwide are the highest they've been since the ALA began keeping track of these stats more than 20 years ago. We must unite against book bans. Peoria Public Library is one of the largest downstate library systems with five locations across the city, but we knew we needed to be stronger if we knew we would be stronger if we joined with other libraries to fight against censorship. We reached out to our sister libraries and for the first time formed Central Illinois Reads, a freedom to read partnership with seven public libraries and several community organizations, including Bradley University, 
Methodist College, and Neighborhood House, a Peoria nonprofit that tutors ages five and up. Between now and the first week of October, which is Banned Books Week, we are shining a light on how essential it is that we protect our freedom to read. We've already hosted authors to discuss book bans, and tomorrow night, our partner Fond du Lac Library will host a panel discussion where high schoolers will use the often challenged book Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson as a prompt to talk about difficult top topics such as assault, suicidal ideation, and depression. Working together, we're also able to bring Laurie Hall Sanderson to Peoria later this summer. She's an award-winning author and a New York Times best-selling author known for tackling tough topics with humor and sensitivity, and she's been honored for battling for intellectual freedom by the National Coalition Against Censorship. Books like hers are important because, as she says, by attacking these books, by attacking the authors, by attacking the subject matter, what they are doing is removing the possibility for conversation. You are laying the groundwork for increasing bullying, disrespect, violence, and attacks. Our country needs to stand up against book bans, and I'm extremely proud that Illinois is. We're very grateful to be here today, and thank you for including us. More Week in Review, coming up. More action from the Illinois legislature as the end of the spring legislative session draws near. The Illinois House this week approved and moved to the Senate a bill that would address what is considered to be price gouging of prescription generic drugs. Peoria State Senator Dave Kaler is the chief sponsor in the Senate, and you'll hear from him in a minute. First, though, William McNary, head of the advocacy group Citizens Action Illinois, and the House sponsor, State Representative Nabila Saeed of Palatine. We believe that this bill will make a significant difference in the lives of many Illinois residents who rely on generic drugs to stay healthy. This bill is an important step in our ongoing fight to make sure that high-quality, affordable health care is a right guarantee to all Illinoisans. And to talk about her bill is the fabulous, the fantastic, and the fearless sponsor of, from Palatine, Illinois, Representative Nabila Saeed. No, it is such a pleasure to be here today, and I just want to start off with gratitude. Um, there were a lot of folks, many folks standing right behind me, that have worked so tirelessly uh, to see this bill through, to see it passed in the House and hopefully passed in the Senate in the coming weeks. Um, and I just want to start off by thanking the volunteer lobbyists at AARP for your tireless advocacy. Thank you for having those important conversations. Uh, our you know, volunteers at AFSME Council 31 and the AFSME Retirees Chapter 31. Um, and of course, Citizen Action, William McNary and Anusha Thodakura for making sure that this bill is, has bipartisan support. And finally, thank you so much to, um, well, two other people, Representative Will Gazzardi for paving the path for this bill five years ago, and Senator Kaler for taking this fight on in the Senate. Um, th like William said, um, without a question, this is a good bill. This is a bill that helps people in our communities. This is a bill that will bring the cost of certain prescription drugs down. And this is a bill that makes sure that Illinois consumers are not being exploited when it comes to generic and off-patent drugs. It is our duty to protect Illinoisans. It's our duty to take care of our seniors. And that is exactly what this bill does. Um, and I just want to say, you know, I was very, it was very nice to see the vote. You know, we had 84 yes votes on this bill. 
and it makes it clear that prescription drug affordability should be a bipartisan issue and is a bipartisan issue. This is something we could all unite on to take care of our constituents and bring back and deliver for Illinois residents. So I'm going to pass it on to Senator Kaler, or I'm going to pass it on to Will, Liam. There you go. It always goes back to William. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Representative Saeed, for your uh, fighting a good fight and getting us thus far. Uh, but we're only halfway there. And time is of the essence. You know, life-saving prescription drugs can only help you if you can afford to take them. And so we are calling on the Senate to swiftly pass the bill as soon as possible. You know the good news? The good news is taking on the baton that Representative Saeed has passed so far is a longtime health care champion, our good friend, leader, Dave Kaler. Dave? Some thank yous, Honor. Representative Saeed, thank you so much. Your leadership on this has really made a difference, and to come out with 80 votes means it's a bipartisan bill. That's the first thing that I'm going to tell my colleagues in the Senate. This is a bipartisan bill, and that means something. Uh, this is not about party politics. This is about uh, helping people that can't afford to have prescription drugs. It's, it's not like prescription drugs are, are this, uh, you know, choice that you have. No, it's a necessity. It's a necessity. And in our American system, you know, we, we have a free enterprise system. You know, companies have a right to, to make a living, to make a profit, but not to gouge. Not to gouge. And so this is what this is about. It's about being fair. It's about uh, you know, being responsible to making sure that people who need it most in our society have the ability to access the drugs they need to just keep their lives in order. Right? So we're going to pass this in the Senate. We'll do it swiftly, William. We'll do it swiftly. And, uh, and again, we'll, we'll have a bipartisan vote as well, I assure you. So again, my thanks, and uh, I'll pass this back to William. Thank you. With all deliberate speed, <laughs> we could not have uh, passed a bill of this magnitude without the support of our many, many allies and friends. And so I want to say a special thank you to not only the Illinois Alliance for Retired Americans, but ASME Council 31 and the AIDS Foundation. And who am I missing? I'm not missing anybody because I'm getting ready to introduce right now someone who will speak for the AARP. Thank you so much for lobbying shoulder to shoulder with us down uh, on the rail. And, and, f and when we found the, where the Senate is now, we, we lobbied over there. They could run, but they couldn't hide. So thank you so much. And to speak for the AARP is Ryan Grinnenfelder. Man, that's a mouthful. Hi, I'm Ryan Grinnenfelder. I'm Senior Director of Advocacy and Outreach for AARP in Illinois. I want to first start off by thanking William McNary and Senator Kaler and Representative Saeed for their uh, championship on this important uh, piece of legislation. This is something that we have been working on for years. This goes back to 2018, 2019 when we had a giant calculator built and we asked seniors, older adults, not just seniors, but Illinoisans from all over the state of Illinois to tell us how much their prescription drugs are costing them. And that number got up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the vast majority of those people then and still today are telling us that they cannot afford their prescription drugs, that they are cutting their pills in half, that they're choosing between their food and their medicine because the drugs are costing them so much money. And 
we are committed to taking action on that. And with this piece of legislation and with many other pieces of legislation that are out there, not just here in Illinois, but in our state offices across the nation and on, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And I do want to in particular give a shout out to our members and our who are also are volunteering for us who have spent countless hours so far this session working to try to get this bill passed through the House. And we're going to continue the same in the Senate. And uh, I think we need to give as much support as we can to Senator Kaler to get this passed through the Senate and get it on the governor's desk. So thank you. Thank you, Ryan, yeah. my lifelong friend. <laughs> Everything that needs to be said has been said, but everybody hasn't said it yet. So to wrap us up, no, it's funny. To wrap us up is uh, the longtime leader, senior leader. I don't know anybody who will fight harder for issues that affect seniors than the president of the Illinois Alliance for Retired Americans, President Don Todd. Thank you, Willie. And Senator Kaler and uh, Zaid, Representative Zaid, I want to thank both of you for uh, the, great, the tremendous work, all of you, for the tremendous work that you have put into getting this bill passed through the House. Uh, I remember when we started, when the questions were first being asked of our members, how much did prescription drugs cost? And uh, you, some of our members uh, had to choose between dr prescription drugs and food. And that was back in 2018. Uh, nowadays, more and more of our members, because of the high cost of food, are having to make that choice. So it's very important that this bill passes the Senate. Uh, it's a tremendous help to seniors, and it's really uh, something that we have all worked hard together for, and I want to thank all of you for doing that. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Don. This is part of an ongoing effort to make sure that high-quality, affordable health care is guaranteed as a right to all. This bill will empower the Attorney General to make sure that if he suspects price gouging from any of the generic companies, then it empowers him to bring a case before these companies which may lower the prices of the drugs or call for a rebate to consumers or uh, protect the uh, damages if, if need be. Citizen Action has continued to work on this, so stay tuned for other bills that deal with prescription drugs. We've already we're going to pass a bill that makes sure that uh, insulin is capped at $35 a month for state workers, and we're also going to make the non-state workers make that available to them at a discount as well. And there's going to be a bill that deals with the state of Illinois establishing a state-based insurance exchange. This is an ongoing effort, and we're going to need all of you to just continue your efforts and continue to fight. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.